You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. Good to be with you guys, as always. If I haven't met you, my name by birth is Ryan. But for many years, I have not been called this, or by people that know me, I've been called Riz. It's a nickname. So I'll tell you the story later if you want to know, but you can call me Riz as if we're best buds. Um, No problem. Uh, But glad to be with you. So excited every Sunday to fellowship and worship and get into God's word together. And uh, that's what we do every Sunday here. We get into the word of God and spend uh, a majority of our time in it, allowing God to speak to us. We are currently in the book of Philippians, and so if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. We're going to be finishing off chapter 3 today. Uh, Each week, we go through a few verses and dig in and try to allow God to speak to us with what is going on in his word in that given verse. And so uh, what I want to do is read verses 17 through 21. And then go ahead and pray. Paul speaking says this, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these truths this morning. We thank you that you've preserved them, that we have them in our hands. And God, we want to hear from you. So Holy Spirit, speak to us through your word. Minister to where we need to be ministered to. God, we thank you that you are all-knowing and all-powerful, and you know where we're at in life. You know the week we had. You know what we're going through. You know... The issues we have even with you, we have the struggles, the doubts, the good, the bad, and the ugly. You're God. You are intimately acquainted with all our ways. We just say, God, have your way with us this morning. Your will be done and your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's a lot going on in these few verses, and you for sure could break it down even more. Like one, verse 17 alone, a whole sermon, verse 18 alone. We're doing a couple, but there's three things that I want to point out of this text this morning. Three points. If you're taking notes, here's the outline. We, number one is we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. That's what Paul speaks about here. Number two, though, he says that we're temporary residents living in a fallen earth. And lastly, that in light of those things, that we are to live in anticipation of what's to come. So that's what we're going to work through today. The first part is this idea here that we see that we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. 
right? He says this in verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. At the core of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the work of Christ on the cross was to repair a relationship between us and God that was devastated by sin. And at the core of the gospel, it's that our sin would be forgiven, that Christ took our sin, and he actually gave us or imputed us his righteousness. Theologians would call this the great exchange, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Christ took our sin on our behalf, and he exchanged it for his righteousness. It's a bad deal he got, but he did it on our behalf. Meaning that Christ has paid the price and debt of our sin. Like we accrued a debt against God, and the cross paid our debt, paid in full, to tell us that. So now, because we've been imputed Christ's righteousness, before God, we're found faultless and blameless. And literally, we're not sinners, we're saints now in the eyes of God. It's the beautiful, wonderful, amazing, good news of Jesus Christ. And it's not on the basis of what we've done, right? It's upon what Christ has done on our behalf that we now stand faultless and blameless before our God so that we can now be in his presence specifically for all of eternity. Like that's where it's leading. So that we could be with God, a relationship restored, but forever. Like God sent his son to repair what was broken so that it would fix it forever. And heaven is the place where God the Father dwells, where he rules and reigns and is forever worshipped and glorified. And Jesus, the Son, is seated at the right hand of the Father. This is heaven. For the Christians in here, those of us that have put our trust in Christ, he's our Lord and Savior. Like we've repented of our sins, we've accepted that we need a Savior, right? For, For Christians in here, Eternity with God in heaven awaits us. Our trust in Christ gives us access, acceptance, and place with God in heaven. This is what this does. The book of Romans, Romans 8, says that when we're saved, we're adopted into God's family as sons and daughters. But what also, that also does, that adoption also makes us citizens of heaven. Not only sons and daughters, but citizens of a heavenly kingdom. And Paul brings this idea up here. And if you remember, the church in Philippi was the first you know, Christian church in Europe. But at that time, that was a Roman colony. That was under Roman rule. And so for for the Philippians to read this letter, who greatly valued their Roman citizenship, they would have appreciated this that much more. Because the Philippians would have considered themselves a citizen of Rome under Roman rule and laws and customs, even though they were far from Rome. So it was under the Roman rule at the time, the Roman Empire, even though it was far from Rome. 
they would have thought this. But as Christians, we should consider ourselves citizens of heaven. Again, the original audience that this was written to, it would have been very potent to them. They would have understood very well the concept of what it meant to be a citizen of a certain country or a certain empire. For us as believers, this idea that our citizenship is in heaven means at the core that heaven is our home. That is actually our permanent dwelling place. It's our place of residence. It's the place of allegiance. It's the place where we belong. Heaven is our home. We belong to God, his kingdom, and his dwelling place. And Paul says, hey, we're, we're not there yet, but we're awaiting Jesus to come back again. We're eagerly awaiting a savior. Jesus is second coming. And in the same way, these Philippians in this Roman colony, they would have eagerly awaited a visitor uh, or the emperor of Rome to come. You know, they, as a colony, it happened very seldomly, but it was always a big deal when it happened. And so they, in the same way, knew when, when the king, when the emperor, when the Caesar of the time came, what a big deal it was. And people would eagerly await it. But that much more, we as believers await Christ's final return so that we can be with him. Right? Paul is, is making a point to write in a way where this original church can, can, can understand it. We too, even though we're living in a very different place some 2,000 years later, we get this idea of citizenship and what comes from that. And not only is heaven our home and it awaits us, a savior is coming back to get us. There's, there's hope coming to restore everything. But also, what happens is, is our actual physical bodies change. Like they're redeemed, they're made perfect, they're made new. This idea here in verse 20, Paul brings up, is that we will have a glorified body just like Christ's body. And this idea here is that when we are resurrected, we will have the same type of body that Jesus himself had when he was resurrected from the dead. See, Jesus wasn't just like resuscitated from the dead. Like CPR after three days, let's get him up. He's in the tomb. We need, to, we need to help him. He wasn't just merely resuscitated. He was resurrected in a new glorified body, equipped and fitted for heaven that had none of the effects of sin, that was perfect in every way. It was perfect once again as God designed it to be. And, you know, that's a joke for maybe some people that are, you know, feeling old or your body's not working well. It's like, well, one day I'm going to have a glorified body. And that's true. Like, that, that is what it's talking about here, that, that all the effects that this fallen weird world has on our physical body, like that we're aging and dying and it doesn't work as well, and the older you get, like, the less it works and so forth. This won't always be the case. Like, heaven, our home, that, the, that our Savior will come for, not only will we get to be with God, but we'll get to be with God in a glorified body, perfect once again, and heaven will be free of disease and pain and tears and death. That won't exist there. Like, just that alone, can you imagine a place like that? 
those things are what makes this world bad because it, pain and sorrow and death and hurt and abuse and so forth exist in it. So Paul is saying, hey, what's coming, what you belong to, who you're citizens of is this amazing dwelling place of God. Eternity is awaiting for you. But there's a problem. There's a problem. We're not there yet. It's not, it's not come yet for all of us still here. So this idea is, is that we are temporary residents in a fallen world. This isn't our home. This isn't where we're citizens. Yeah, we may be citizens of a certain c- country or empire here, but that's not our true citizenship. As believers, our true citizenship, our true home is heaven, and so we're just passing through. But there is so much that we have to deal with before we get to heaven that's here on earth. There's so much that goes on. Like, right, even one day, one time looking at the news, one week, maybe this week you have, you're like, heaven can't come soon enough. Right, life's hard. It's filled with all the effects of sin. And Paul points this out, that there's actually many enemies of the cross. Like, sin is so rampant, And people are denying Christ and not believing there's actually enemies of Christ, right? He says that. He's like, for as often I've told you before, and now I tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. Their their mind is set on earthly things. Paul's, Paul's spoken to the culture to the people groups and the distinct people uh, in a lot of different cities in Europe and in the Middle East. A lot of his letters that he writes are to address either problems in the church, the way that Christians should live, but so much of it is tied to the people that are living in that place, in that city, in that certain region. And so he's speaking here to the church in Philippi, but he's also done it in the letter to the church in Corinth or the church in Rome. Many times he speaks of people that have this little bit of warped sense of what it means to be saved, to know God. In 1 Corinthians 6 and Romans chapter 6, he speaks, and in Philippians here, he speaks of people that they believe that salvation comes without repentance or conversion, and as long as your soul has been saved, it doesn't matter what you do with your body. That actually doesn't, that's not, that doesn't work. But this is what's happening. So sin and lifestyles of sin and sexual immorality and, and the like are rampant, but people are believing or people are claiming or people are, this is warped sense of what it means to follow God. They're enemies, in a sense, to the biblical truth of Christ's work on the cross or its ongoing power and effect in your life. And so Paul here, he's describing, at least in Philippi or in that region, the type of things that are going on. He says there's so many that are actually living as enemies to Christ because they have a warped sense of what it means to follow God. And he brings this idea up that there's those in this fallen world whose God is their belly. Now, that's not necessarily focused on like what they eat, but it could be. 
But belly here is a broader reference to any sensual indulgence in general. Like they just want to do what pleases them and what makes them feel good. Like they have an appetite for sex, they go get it. They have an appetite for immorality, they go get it. They have an appetite for wealth, they go get it. Yeah, I love God, or yeah, that's God, but I'm going to do what I want, how I want, when I want, because I have an appetite for it. This is what Paul is speaking about here. They're living for pleasures of the body, mind, and soul. And their God is their belly. Sound anything like our word today? (laughs) Sounds exactly. 2,000 years ago in a different culture, there's so much of our world today that just wants fun, that just wants pleasure, that wants to avoid everything that doesn't advance their, their wealth or their wants or their desires. Their God is their belly. And Paul says, also there's many whose glory is in their shame. What this shows is just misplaced priorities of these enemies. They're, they're actually glorying in, they're, they're, the glorify, they're, they're glorifying things that they should be ashamed about. That's what it means here. Like they're living a lifestyle that they're super excited about. Because it's giving them pleasure, because it's wetting their appetite, because they're getting what they want. But really, those things are killing them and being disobedient to God and those things that they should be ashamed about. Like, don't do that. That's not the way in which God designed it. They're actually glorying in those things. That is most of Instagram. (laughs) I mean, you know, like, you understand what I'm saying. Like, there's so much of Instagram, maybe this non-believers here or whatever, you don't know Jesus, that the things that you're excited to post and glory in, you're actually like, dude, you shouldn't be doing that. That is contrary. That's hurting you. That's not how God designed you. There's glory in shameful things. And Paul says here, he says, for many walk in this way. Like many walk in this way. And with great sadness, Paul realizes that there's many who walk in a manner contrary to what scripture teaches and what the Bible teaches and what God wants. And he regards these peoples as enemies of Christ. So that's, that's his terminology here. But this is what's interesting. If you know anything about Paul, Paul is not a crier. You hardly see this kind of emotion from Paul. Actually, you maybe never do. Charles Spurgeon, in this famous quote or whatever by Charles Spurgeon, he, he, he plays on this. Because in our text this morning, it says that Paul is weeping and he continues to weep for the fate of humanity. This is what Spurgeon says about this right here. I never read, I've never read that the apostle wept when he was persecuted. Though they, they plowed his back with furrows, I do believe that never a tear was seen to gush from his eye while the soldiers scourged him. Though he was cast in prison, we read of his singing, never his groaning. I do not believe he ever wept on account of any suffering or dangers to which he himself was exposed for Christ's sake. I call this an extraordinary sorrow because the man who wept was no soft piece of sentiment and seldom shed a tear even under grievous trials. Paul felt the weight of the fallen world around him. And we, too, live in a climate and an atmosphere that can be overwhelmingly full of this. You know, we're so desensitized to it that things that, like, should cause us great sorrow, we see it so much 
that we become desensitized and almost like we can't process so much bad news. Like we were even changing the way that we're wired to, to be desensitized to it. There's so much of it around us. It can be overwhelming. And we live in a world that, like Paul, most everything, a lot of it opposes Christ and his kingdom. And like Paul, if you do for a second, if you know, something affects you or you step back and you go, I cannot believe the weight of where our world is going, it will lead you to weep and mourn and lament over the pain that's happening in the state of the world. We can relate to that. I mean, it's pretty interesting. 2,000 years ago, an entire different part of the planet, this is the same truth that we're citizens of heaven living in a very fallen, ungodly, opposing world. But in the midst of all that, we do get glimpses of God's kingdom. We do. God's kingdom has come, and it's here but it's not fully here. It'll fully be here when Jesus comes back and rules and reigns and said everything right and there's no pain and there's no brokenness and sin is done with forever. But currently, we live in the tension of the here but not yet fully here kingdom of God. It's kind of hard to understand. But the gospels are full of this the moment that Jesus came on the scene. The moment that God sent his son To be born, to save the world, over and over, the Gospels are filled with this idea of the kingdom of God being at hand. You read it all the time. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Or it's it's come and it's coming. Jesus brought the kingdom, right? The saving grace in the person of Christ and the incredible world-changing effects that it has is the kingdom come and coming. It didn't just come and leave, but it came with Christ. He paid the ultimate price for all of humanity. We are still, in some ways, seeing glimpses of God's kingdom here on earth. We see that. We see glimpses of it, though. It's not fully yet. But what Jesus does in his famous Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he's giving this sermon overlooking the Sea of Galilee on the Mount of Beatitudes. And it's his disciples, and it's the crowds that have gathered, and more or less, it's instructions for how to live, and the attitudes that followers of Christ should have, and the type of life you should have. And he gives a model prayer. Jesus actually says, this is how you should pray. You have a question? You want to know how to pray? Pray this way. Matthew 6, 9 through 13, Jesus speaking. He says, pray then in this way. Have it on the screen. Our Father who is in heaven... Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Jesus says, this is where all prayer should start. This is the model for prayer. Yeah, pray more than this. Pray more often. But pray in this way. A huge part of this prayer is praying for God's heavenly kingdom to come on earth. We ought to pray that. We ought to want that. We want to see God come in his power to this fallen world. 
The world needs his grace and his mercy and his love. The world needs to be healed and restored and set free. We want God's kingdom here. We can't be like the escapists that are just like, I'm going to sit in the corner, I'm going to go up in the hills, I'm going to let it all burn, and then when Jesus comes back, I'm good. It's like, well, no, that's not how it works. Yes, that's true that Jesus is going to come back and set everything right, but he wants to use us to pray, to live out, to be in God's kingdom here on earth. Jesus, out of the words of Jesus, out of the lips of Jesus, he says, pray in this way. Guys, we need to pray that way like where you live, in your neighborhood, at your work. God, let your kingdom come here. God, would you, would you, would you come in power? Would you save my coworkers? God, would they experience your love in the same way that I've experienced it? That's what Jesus is talking about when he's saying, God, let your kingdom come and your will be done. It's asking God in all his glory, in all his power, in all his love, in the same way that he met you to meet those around you. So guys, I want to challenge us that even though we live in, as temporary residents in a fallen world, we're citizens of heaven, and we ought to pray, God, in Honolulu as it is in heaven, wherever, wherever you live, in Kaimuki as it is in heaven, at your job as it is in heaven, God, come and your will be done. But also, not only that, but third and final point, is that we are to live in anticipation of what's to come. Not only pray it in, but live it out. Paul says that our life now should be looking forward for what awaits us. Like we are eagerly awaiting Christ's return. That isn't just in theory, that's in practice. What Paul is speaking about here is that we are supposed to live our lives with a heavenly perspective. And that heavenly perspective is actually supposed to change us here and now. It's not just supposed to be a good thought tucked away for one day. It's actually supposed to inform the way we live here and now. One paraphrase of citizenship in heaven could read like this. We have our home in heaven, but here on earth, we are a colony of heaven's citizens. This is what Paul's saying. Just as the Roman colonists never forgot that they belonged to Rome, you must never forget that you're a citizen of heaven and your conduct must match your citizenship. It's a quote by William Barclay. He says, your conduct must match your citizenship. You need to live in to who you are as citizens of heaven. And if you realize our text, there's a very distinct lifestyle between those that are citizens of heaven and those that aren't in our text today. We're supposed to know who we are. We're caught in the tension of the here and now. Again, that doesn't just mean that we hold out and wait. It's that we live as though we were citizens of heaven here and now. Okay, so this is, this is that idea, a heavenly perspective should change the way we live life. It should change our priorities. It should change what's important to us. It should change where we spend our time, how we give our time, how we give our money, what we do with our money, what we do with our time, what we do with our resources, what we do with our giftings, what we do with our talents, what you do with your family, what we do with your kids. 
It's actually supposed to fully encompass every part of our life now is a heavenly perspective. If any of you guys have um, lost someone, they've passed away, that's someone really close to you, or you yourself or a family member have come really close, like a, like a near-death experience, that changes you. Yesterday um, was a good friend of mine's daughter's anniversary of passing away to cancer. Six years, she's been uh, with the Lord. Um, she had a battle with cancer, lost the battle with Jesus, glorified body. But it was, you know, yesterday was the six-year anniversary of it. And every time that that comes up, and even when we went through it with them, eternity comes straight to your face. Like it's right at your doorstep. You're, you're, you're caused to think about it. You're caused to wonder and figure out. And I'll tell you right now, when eternity comes right to your doorstep, everything in your life becomes clear. Right? If you lose someone that's close to you or you almost lose someone that's close to you, you understand in that moment what's important to you, your priorities, things that you're wasting your time on, what you should do in life and who you should talk to. In a moment, everything's clear. And if you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. Everything comes clear and all of a sudden you have a heavenly perspective because you realize so much of what you're worried and concerned about here on earth is meaningless. It's meaningless. And so this is the type of attitude that Paul is speaking to. We need to live out that daily. Because, right, so many times time goes on and all of a sudden we forget how close and near eternity is. But Paul, this is what Paul is speaking to. When it says to have a heavenly mindset or to dwell in the things above or to be citizens of heaven, it's to have a lifestyle like as if you were going to see Jesus tomorrow. You would live in that way, in that type of way. And Paul understands that what he's saying here and what he's asking is a very hard thing to do. We all would admit that. It's so hard to write, like, only care about what God cares about and not get caught up with the things of the world. Every one of us would agree, yeah, I struggle. Oh, man, I, like, make it. Oh, I stress out and worry about the littlest things. And, like, we, we do that. Paul understands that, and he knows that we all need help doing it. And as citizens of a foreign land, that's what we are as Christians, we need to band together. We have to do this together. And Paul here, in the very first verse, verse 17, he brings up this idea of mentorship. He says, join together in following my examples, brothers and sisters, and just as you, uh, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. We need others' lives to point us to this. We need mentors. We need other people looking out for us. Uh, we need other people's lives living like Christ so that we can model our life after them. This isn't the only time Paul brings this up. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he, he says, Be imitators of me just also as I am of Christ. Paul's not saying, like, I'm the man, I know everything, I'm good, I've got it all together. Last week, he just said the opposite. I don't have it all together. But he's making the point as, like, I am endeavoring to follow Jesus. 
So follow people like me that are like denying their self and take up their cross and following Christ and living for heavenly things. And he's like, man, find people around you to do this. That's what he's saying here. You don't have me. You don't have somebody. Find people. It's that important. Imitate and follow them towards Christ. This is why like the church is so important. Like, this is why the local church, in my mind, is so important, because it's the greatest vehicle for this. Like, that's why, man, I I will preach, like, intergenerational gatherings all day long. Like, it's not that we won't do, like, oh, here's this age group and there's that age group, but there is so much value that our church is comprised of older and younger believers. There's, There's a million reasons for that, but Paul is saying, hey, There needs to be more mature, more solid, walked with Christ longer believers so that the younger, less mature can model their lives after them. Paul's saying it's too hard without that. The world has too much effect on you. You have to have like a a tangible example. Paul would also say bad company corrupts good morals. The idea there is you are made by your environment. This is the truest thing in the world if you remember high school. Your friends, you, you are your friends group. Good, bad, or ugly. And that's true, good, bad, or ugly. You could send your kid to any school in the world, but their friend group is going to determine it. Seriously. Like, you are defined by your environment. You're very moldable. So your environment now, maybe it's not only friends, but it's media. It's any outside influences. And so Paul's saying, in the midst of that, you need tangible people in your life that are following Jesus. You need to grab hold of them and do what they do. That's what he's saying. That, that is by far my testimony. I am absolutely a product of godly men and women that have lived for Jesus, that I've looked up to, that have included me in their life, in their family, that have taken me under their wing. And it hasn't even been a super formal thing. It doesn't have to be. It can be. But this whole idea of godly mentoring and discipleship is is what Paul is saying. He's like, find people that are doing it and imitate them. That's what he said. I mean, there's not like a 10-step process. Not that that's bad. But he's just like, dude, who's following Jesus? Who's been more mature? Who, who's, 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 who's given it all up to follow Jesus? Do what they do. But I want to encourage you that in, that has been the most formative thing. Not that sermons haven't, not that books haven't. Like, obviously, the Holy Spirit, the Bible, everything's been good. Amazing. But where the rubber meets the road, like if I'm going to say, hey, where have you grown most? I'm like, when I met with that guy. Where did you learn what it meant? Where did you learn that? Oh, it's because that family invited me to Thanksgiving every year because I didn't have a family that could, I could go to Thanksgiving and they showed me what godly holidays were. That kind of stuff. No, it, it really happened to me. It was older men and women that served as mentors that I could look onto, grab a hold of, and model my life after. What I want to speak to you too is don't let the church be a bottleneck for this. A lot of times we we'll be like, well, does the church have people that can disciple me? It's like, well, this is the church. This is the church. And a lot of times we, we think we have to wait for a program or a structured thing. Paul is not saying that. He's saying like, 
imitate those around you that love Jesus more than you do. So I want to speak to that. Like, be creative. I know life's busy. I know you're like, when do I have time for that? But like, man, if you, you work around some Christians, like, hey, Thursday every other week, let's get together. Hey, go to the beach with the families on Saturday morning. Have lunch after church on a Sunday. I don't know, be creative. Don't let like, I'm too busy stop you, which is normally our excuse. This doesn't have to be formal. It just has to be pursuing Christ with others ahead of you. And Paul's whole point here is that we're citizens of heaven living in a foreign land, but we need to do this together. We need to live out God's kingdom together as the church. And I'll end with one verse, excuse me, a couple verses, but from Colossians chapter 3. Again, Paul's writing this to the church in Colossae. He says, since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. God, thank you. Thank you that this is actually who we are that we have been bought with a price, that we're new creations, that our life is no longer our own, it's hidden with Christ Jesus. And so God, would, would, we, would you help us to practically live out our citizenship, what it means to live out God's kingdom here? Would that change the way we view our lives here and now? This isn't our home. We're passing through, our life is but a mist or a vapor. It's here one minute and gone the next. Help us, Lord, to live into that, to be believers and Christians that are living for heaven and heavenly things. God, we pray as we worship you now that we would worship you because you're worthy to be worshiped. All of this is because of you and what you've done. You're a God that saw our plight, that saw our need, that saw our brokenness, and you sent what was most precious to you to save us. While we were yet sinners, Christ, you died for us. That's why we worship this morning. God, we pray that we would. We would worship you in spirit and in truth with our whole hearts, not out of lip service, but out of a deep sense of gratitude. Have your way with us now. 